Hi, my name is Philip, and welcome back to Deep Tech Stories. When most people think about particle accelerators like CERN, they don't necessarily think of useful innovation with societal impact. It's after all just theoretical tinkering without much real-world application. However, this couldn't be further from the truth. Improvements in particle accelerators that were necessary to discover new physics led to many inventions over the years. Among the most prominent stand the majority of modern medical imaging technology and the internet, allowing for a huge playground for deep tech companies. With the much-awaited discovery of the Higgs particle, which was initially proposed in 1954 and then subsequently discovered in 2013, the so-called standard model of particle physics was considered to be completed. Yet, particle physicists like Professor Caterina Doglioni in Lund keep innovating and improving their techniques to go beyond the standard model and explain the so far elusive dark matter. Yeah, I think what dark matter is, is the answer is, we wish we knew. But that's why we're trying to find explanations for it. So there's two big lines of explanation for dark matter. And they are both derived from the fact that we see extra matter in the universe with respect to what we like we perceive extra matter in the universe with respect to what we can see and when we're talking about seeing we're talking about interactions with photons for example the way we we see things or electromagnetic interactions somehow so we don't see via gravity we see a lot of matter but via other interactions we don't see enough so that's the discrepancy that's why we call it dark so dark matter is not dark as such, it's invisible to our methods of seeing things so far. So one way to think about dark matter is, okay, so we have this discrepancy be- between visible matter and invisible matter. So the, the one thing that I will not talk about, uh, and uh, you can get someone else to talk about that, is uh, if we got gravity wrong. Because it might be that because the only hint we have about dark matter, the only observation we have about dark matter comes from the fact that it interacts with gravity. Maybe gravity is not correct. Maybe we have to rewrite gravity or make some small modifications to gravity that mean that this dark matter is not really a problem. Those kind of theories have other kind of issues because you need to explain a lot of observations at the same time. And Mm. modified gravity theory don't necessarily explain everything or they're still working on that. So it's, that's why not too many people are, uh, like, it's very, very hard to write this theory and to write experimental verifications of these theories. Yep. So that's something that I'm not going to talk about. But the other option is there is a new particle or a new object, new massive object that is registered by gravity, that interacts gravitationally, and that is our dark matter. I'm pursuing the second option. I'm trying to look for a particle that can behave as dark matter. And that particle then also subsequently shouldn't interact with anything else via little collisions? Well, that's a tricky question, because if it doesn't interact with anything at all, except for gravity, where would it stuck? Because every single way of detecting particles that we have relies on one of the other three forces. Mm. So it's either the strong force, or the electromagnetic force, or the weak force. So if we have none of these forces at all, and no other force that we can make up that connects the dark matter to our visible world, then dark matter is completely separated from us. What we think is happening, and uh, this is what we think is happening, has a bit of bias because that's one way in which we can see it, is that there is a very weak 
or very feeble, I don't know how you want to call it, a very small interaction between the particles that we know and the particles that we don't know. And it could be that uh, this interaction is the weak force. There are some theories that predict that this, uh, that this is that kind of interaction. Or you could have a force that is similar to the weak force, but much weaker in terms of uh, force strength, interaction strength. Mm. Uh, or you could have some uh, other mechanism that somehow mixes particles between our standard model and this dark matter. Standard model is the theory that we bunch up all the other particles that, that we're made of. Yeah. Uh, so there's there must be some kind of connections for us to be able to to see this dark matter with our instruments. And otherwise, it's very hard to think that it's uh, that that is going to be visible. But of course, there's people looking for that kind of gravity only dark matter as well. So we first got to know about it because of. Um... I think mostly did the galaxies that they should have more matter, and otherwise they would just fly apart. Yeah, so it was a Swedish guy that uh, well, guy professor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so it, uh, I mean, the, of course, every country has their own preferred. Uh, uh, I got this first, so yes. I can't tell if uh, <laughs> this is uh, a German. I can tell if it's a Dutch. I can tell if it's a Swedish person, or I can tell if it's a Swiss person. There's all these people that were looking at the movement of visible galaxies mm. clusters of galaxies or galaxies by themselves and saw that the rotation uh that the way this uh the, the parts of this uh astronomical formations moved with respect to each other did not match their luminous output so that's why they started thinking about this dunkle materia i think that's uh it was all german so mm. anyway it was dark matter and, and then they This was confirmed by the by Vera Rubin in the 70s. So that was in the 30s. And in the 70s, uh, Vera Rubin did some precise observations of the rotational velocity within a single galaxy. And uh, I think the easiest thing you can think about, but I don't have the I don't have the prop here, but it's a tabletop, you know, like the mm -hmm. things that you spin. And you're expecting that there is some friction between the This is just a very, very basic way of, of explaining it. That's not exactly how it works. Yes. <laughs> But the, the outside of this, uh, the outside of your uh, spinning top will have some friction with the air around it. So if you measure the air around it, close to the, the spinning top, mm -hmm. then you expect that once that kind of friction goes away, then your the velocity of the air around it will decrease because it's not touching anymore the, the spinning top. Um, What the, so this is what you expect with galaxies that rotate like this, that the gases around it are influenced for a bit, but then not too much after a certain radius from the center of the galaxy. Now, what they saw is that this effect of a, a kind of friction between the, the spinning top and the air, so the galaxy and the gas, was a lot longer in range than what the visible uh, observation of the galaxy would make you think. So it like the, this galaxy extended for much longer mm -hmm. than you could see, and you saw this these gases keep that kept rotating together with the galaxy for for a long time. So that means there's something that is dragging these gases around, and that extra matter was called dark matter. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more evidence as well. So one beautiful uh, evidence is I think the gravitational lensing, because you have uh, a modification of space time whenever you have uh, massive objects in between you and the light path 
that uh, like the end of the light path where you're looking. So the photons actually get deviated and create structures in your observations. You can see, for example, the same object twice. You see kind of a mirroring effect in the same way if you were looking at the at a glass, like at the end of a glass, mm. can make these kind of structures. And that's the kind of lensing that, that you get in the sky. And the blobs of matter that create this distortion, the space time is, uh, is that matter. Mm -hmm. Plus you can check, uh, there's uh, other galaxies that collided and the, because they are made of both ordinary matter so that you can see with X-rays, for example, and dark matter, they can just see gravitationally. You see that the, the behavior of this collision is not exactly how you expect two things made of matter to behave. So all of this uh, evidence piles up and uh, tells us, okay, there is some more matter in the universe. And the other nice thing is that the, the cosmic microwave background, which is kind of the, the footprint of the universe, uh, the first footprint that we have of the universe, it's uh, that lets us measure how much dark matter there is so we have okay there is more dark matter and also we know how much there is still around mm -hmm. which means that there is this this particle is still around there so we can make predictions based on this uh, how this 27 percent of the um, total matter energy density of the universe came to be that's how much i mean it, it doesn't look like a lot but consider that we are made of five percent of the total matter energy, so you know, 77% is five times larger. Then the rest is dark energy. Mm -hmm. So you know this. there is an um, amount of dark matter, and there's there you can start building models that explain how that dark matter that we still see in the, the universe nowadays came to be. And that guides us to what we're looking for. So in particular, I'm trying to look for these particles, to create these particles in the lab by the Large Hadron Collider. So we definitely know where to look for. Well, I mean, this is just one of the ways to look for it. But what if your dark matter particle, for example, is a gigantic particle, it's huge? What if it's a primordial black hole even? What, what does huge mean in that? So at the Large Hadron Collider, we're colliding protons. Yes. And we're colliding, a proton is uh, not very large, I would say, in the grand scheme of things. An electron is tiny. A neutrino is even tinier. Proton is medium size. Higgs boson, large enough, but not super large. And uh, we measure things in uh, a measure of energy somehow, a measure of energy and mass, given that E equals MC squared, so we can kind of interchange too. Um, but I would say that, that these are not very large masses compared to the grand scheme of things. So in terms of ordinary mass of, of something, this is way smaller. Than, than what anything that we can see. It's way smaller than a molecule even. This is just the fundamental components of mm -hmm. matter. Maybe the top quark, which is the, hard, the, the highest mass particle that we have, is comparable to an atom of gold, roughly. So that's the, that's the largest particle we can make. So this is the range that we're kind of looking at. Okay. Maybe one order magnitude more. And when we're talking about black holes then you go way beyond that you go way beyond like solar masses so there's a huge any dark matter could be any of this it could be in any mass range and that is what is what makes it harder uh, to, to find with one instrument only and that is why we use so many instruments at the same time so the large hadron collider is just one of the 
the different instruments looks for dark matter. There's uh, mm. instruments in space, there's instruments underground, there's uh, measurements uh, via observations. Uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do. And we need to do them all because we don't really have prejudice in where dark matter is. Even though we have these hints, they can mm. be satisfied by a lot of different options in terms of mass and interaction style. And you, so I, I know that there is some, because I've been there and there was big talk about it when I was there in Australia, um, that they used or starting to use a mine now. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, is it two. the, the Saber experiment? That's an interesting one. And I think I they like only started last week with building it, mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> um, so you've decided based on your previous research in your PhD and master thesis probably to go down the the LHC route or was or, that <laughs> I don't know I think it's uh, for me life has been a, a series of decisions driven by life more than driven by I guess science in a way mm-hmm. but I've always done managed to I've been lucky enough to always be able to do the science I wanted to do that I found interesting and make it compatible with what I wanted to do in life. So that, that kind of worked. So I wouldn't say that, uh, I mean, I'm interested in the problem. I think it's a very cool problem to solve, but I'm also aware that I will, it's not a problem that I will solve alone. And maybe it's a problem that will not be solved in my lifetime. And I'm okay with that. Uh, I could have started studying something else, like doing measurements, precise measurements of the standard model quantities of the particles that we know. That's what I started with in my PhD. Mm-hmm. Then I decided that it would be interesting to change a bit. and and look for like search for something and then maybe in five years time i decide that okay now i've done enough in this let's uh, leave my studies to someone else and then go do something else completely different again you're definitely taking a lot away you know right now which i planned for later <laughs> <laughs> um so historically speaking every time or there were also a few there were always a few problems that were defined kind of as a sensitivity problem over the years Whereas the first one, the moment we had telescopes and or just generally were able to shape lenses, we, we figured out a lot more. And then we had the first particle colliders and we just built them bigger and bigger. And now we're currently at the, the LHC. The one route then there to go that I would see is just to wait for the next iteration, which would be the, the high luminosity. Well, um, rather than wait, design it. It's a yes. fun part. And you on the other side decided to, okay, maybe there's some hint already for it. And we just, because the LHC deletes a lot of data, I guess, on heuristics. Um, it has, it might be in there somewhere. And you just need to figure out how to deal with data better. Yeah. So you, you could say that. Why that way? Well, it's just because we, well, there's there's a cost benefit problem that you always have when you're building something. If you had infinite money, then you would put, build the best detector that records all the data and you take forever to analyze it because you'd also be immortal once you had all the money in the world, right? Mm. Um, but we don't have that privilege of either all the money in the world or immortality. So we have to make choices on what to keep and uh, what to discard because uh, if you do a quick back-of-envelope calculation of how much data you get from the LHC, so I don't remember all the numbers correctly, but um, it's... Uh, I think you get to the the order of something that is not as large as Facebook, but kind of large. You know, the amount of data that you would record if you you have a one collision event of the mm. protons at the LHC every twenty five nanoseconds. So multiply that rate 
times how long the LHC is going to be online, like how many years it stays on, times one megabyte per event. And it becomes a really large number, right? So if you could, you would record all of that data. But we also know that the majority of that data is things that we know, and we don't need to take all the events to measure precisely. We're kind of saturated the statistical precision that we need. And we need maybe to work more on the systematic errors. So you don't want to take all 100% of the data. It wouldn't be possible and it wouldn't also be smart because you'd end up saying, well, all of this is background. Mm. Right? So it's, uh, I don't see it as an intractable problem, even if we didn't have anything else uh, that allows us to record more data. But in particular, the dark matter signals that I'm interested in and uh, this is a simplification because it's not just dark matter signals. It's uh, signals that could be interpreted in dark matter models. It's not the dark matter itself. Uh, those have the characteristic of being completely swamped by backgrounds, and you can't distinguish them from the signal. Like, you can't distinguish signal and background easily. In some other cases, you can. Like, the Higgs boson has some very peculiar, we call them signatures in the detector. So it leaves traces in the detector that you can identify with respect to all the backgrounds, but the models that I'm looking for don't. So at that point, it becomes a bit, you know, it's tricky for me to say, okay, let's, we're okay with throwing out all the data because we can't keep it. But uh, instead of, uh, you know, throwing a tantrum and saying, I want all my data now, uh, because you can't do that. You don't, uh, like, you just can't have the resources. The way that I've, uh, with my collaborator, we've gone to is uh, uh, to try and reduce the footprints of the data that we want to, to record. And uh, we've done it in two ways so far. One is the size of the event. So we're saving a much smaller event. So with respect to the one megabyte of the event that is normally saved, we save five kilobytes. That's all the information we need to do the analysis. And the other thing that we're investigating now, and I think it has implications, it will have implications in the future, but we're very, very, like we're at the very beginning of that, is the, the CPU. So like the computing footprint of what you're recording. Um, mm -hmm. And this has implications on how much it costs, but also on how much your computing farm will need like cooling or power and electricity. So I think this is in general something that I'm interested in because I don't want to just say, I want to buy all the computing resources in the world and who cares how much it costs the environment. I'm also interested in the environmental part. So that's why I find this uh, optimization of resources so interesting. Because it, it, does, it could make things greener in a way. Mm. Now, of course, if you take the question of what is green in particle physics, you say, just shut off the LHC because, you know, you know well, you're not going to eat Higgs bosons. But that's not the point. The point is that you still need basic research and it will have a cost. It will have an environmental cost. But what we're trying to do is to reduce that as much as possible. And I think it's an important point. To, like if you write inefficient code, you're essentially like this is something that you can tell the students to make them feel bad. But if you write inefficient code, you're actually destroying the environment, aren't you? <laughs> you don't want to use that argument right away. But it's something that people should be thinking about. That uh, on a small, it's like recycling. You could do it. Like if your code doesn't is not efficient, is you're not going to destroy the environment. For example, you're, if you're not recycling on Tuesdays, you're not destroying the environment on your own. But on a bigger scale, if everyone does it, yeah, thinking about the, like the bigger picture, then it might work.
But for us, the, the CPU costs are important because uh, this means that uh, if you want to analyze one event or 100 events, because now you can, because the storage has allowed you to store 100 events, you need to analyze them. So at that, problem, at that point, the problem doesn't, is not the storage anymore. It's how many CPUs you need to analyze those events. So mm -hmm. we're trying to make that less expensive as well. What is the, so we could actually, if there's an event every 25 nanoseconds, I'm not sure if we have the hardware to process it that quickly. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. So we don't process things at 25 nanoseconds. Uh, so there's two, the first bottleneck is how, how often you can read the detector. Like you have a collision, then something flashes up in your detector. How fast can you read that? And this is the, the readout. So we can't do that at full 25, every 25 nanoseconds. We have some mm. buffering, but we do it usually at the 100,000 events per second. That's roughly the, what, what we're looking at. And we want to increase it by one order of magnitude. This is my experiment. We want to do 1 million events per second in, uh, at the hardware level. Mm -hmm. uh, there's experiments like LHCB and ALICE. ALICE is another experiment here in Lund that can do it at 40 megahertz, but they have a different technology and they look for different kinds of physics. But if you, uh, if you try to increase it. You can. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> you just uh, need to think about how to do it and uh, do it in a very careful way. It's not something that comes for free, you know? Yeah, because if I, if I would not do it on a hardware side, but on the software side, I would yeah, but... still need to process everything somehow. Mm -hmm. That yeah, but doing it in hardware is a lot better if you have really large amounts of data because you can optimize as much as you can, mm -hmm. like as much as you want. And then the input output is less of a problem. Well, if you try to put all of this amount of data into a, C a farm of CPUs, then you'd get completely swamped, like you'd need a gigantic farm. So you want to do a first selection, a core selection of hardware where you can personalize each of the circuits to do what you want in a very fast way, mm -hmm. coarser way. Then do a first selection there and uh, pass that through a software trigger. This is the way that Atlas and CMS do it. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, LHCB has removed this hardware trigger. They do it directly on software and they do it, they do a first stage on GPUs. You're then trying to increase the, the order of magnitude from after this course filter. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, at that point, uh, you can take. Uh, any event you want in any size or shape or size you want in LHCB. Uh, because that's, uh, they have a different uh, kind of design of the trigger system. So they don't make a selection at the level one. They just take everything and then decide what to record and how to record it. Mm -hmm. So they do this. Uh, they also have some selections in between uh, the reading out and the recording. I don't remember what their uh, recording rate is. Can ask my husband he's working. <laughs> <laughs> he's not making me dinner. <laughs> so maybe I should disturb him. <laughs> so we have all those events at one per twenty five nine seconds. Um they get through the, the course filters. And then mm -hmm. I assume there has to be some dimensionality reduction. Yeah, you can consider it like that. So in the end the dimensionality reduction comes also when you do a reconstruction of the event. Because if you think about a detector in particle physics, you have millions and millions of channels and each channel will have a number and the number will tell you, has this channel uh, fired or not? Is there a particle in that channel or not? Mm -hmm. So the first uh, 
kind of dimensionality reduction you can do is just okay i'll take only the channels that have fired the others one are don't care because they contain zero information nothing passed through that but then you can also combine the information about these various channels into some more physics object information so say that you want to like an electron is a combination it's a it appears in your detector as a series of channels that fire you can sum the energies of all the channels that fire and then get out one number and that number is the energy of the electron mm -hmm. this is a simplified process but there's various steps that you call the nationality reduction in this in this stage this last step we call reconstruction and the first you can call it pedestal suppression or zero suppression and then there's also another step that you need that is to correct for any detector effects that you might have so because your your electron might not be perfectly reconstructed but you know the response of your detector so you know how your detector would respond to an electron and you have a calibration factor that you can apply to that electron so that's another step you want to do and there's a number of steps like that we call them in general reconstruction of and calibration of an object is uh, how to go from the raw data to the final physics object mm -hmm. when when i meant uh dimensional reduction i was trying to get the whole principal component analysis and and um, uh order encoders I, I okay so we're going to from... go in that uh, yes we're going to go in that direction yeah so yes. the uh i think you i mean you can see i wouldn't say keep it that strict in terms of dimensionality reduction whenever you're whenever we're talking about reconstruction that's one way to get go from one to the other then after that you can do more dimensionality reduction but principal component analysis we use it in a lot of places mm. and the fact that i use it for tests of data compression together with a lot of students from lund it's actually only undergraduate students that work with me on that no graduate students for just fun <laughs> uh, maybe at some point we'll do a uh do a phd project about that but for now it's been very exploratory uh there the idea is that you don't necessarily have to use the image of the detector you can use the image of the detector but you can also use an array of numbers and the array of numbers is all the quantities that pertain to a single particle that has appeared in the detector can you make that smaller because if you're for example if your electron is constituted by to describe your electron you have 10 numbers so it will be its energy its uh, um, position in the detector it will be its uh, characteristics how i mean a number of quality variables and so on can you make those 10 numbers into five and then unpack them later it's the same kind of compression algorithms that you would use mm. uh, whatever you're doing some like any other compression algorithm thinks about the same problem and doing it via dimensionality reduction uh, via PCN, like principal component analysis or autoencoders is just one more incarnation of the compression. I have the events. I have various steps that I put in between to try to figure out what happens and how to reduce it in the best way for what I'm searching for. Yeah, but it's not something that we're, we're still in the testing because we are still not sure that this is a, I mean, we think it's good. The first results that we had are good, but it might be that in the end, science also tells you you might not be successful at the end but you've learned something mm. so we don't know how well this will work we're building little step after little step to to get to a bigger picture result 
And I think this is the first year in which one of the students will present at a conference. Because before we were just, we were doing very exploratory studies. Mm -hmm. In hopes of finding the elusive dark matter. Uh, not yet, not yet. I think the, the compression is something that we want to do anyway. And then if we can record more data and with that data find dark matter, great. But if not, we still compress something efficiently. Mm -hmm. Which will definitely be useful for yeah, it could be useful. someone later on. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So it tends to be with, with CERN and all yeah. the medical imaging and whatever came out of there. Yeah, but I think already in this case, we're more about the were the users rather than the, the inventors of a technique. Because in the end, uh, autoencoders for analysis for compression of images have been used in, in a variety of places. We're applying that to our use case as well. And this is a lot of the time it happens that someone in computing science or someone else in uh, some other field says, I've found this technique useful for my case. And then we talk to them and find that it would be useful for our case as well. And if we hadn't talked, then we wouldn't have found the new technique for us. So that's, I think, the importance of interdisciplinary discussion and research is that, that you get new ideas on how to apply things. Maybe someone will find one of the techniques that we've invented and we've used useful for them. That's a case that you were talking about in medical imaging or you know, detectors mm. and so on. Is that talking that you do? Is it more of a passive process? You just find the papers by, by chance or are you actually actively going to, to conferences with them or reach out or? I think there's a mix of everything. The, I think the most fun times is when you actually manage to talk and make a connection with the people. So I think the best ideas that you get are when you really talk things through and discuss. So uh, Lund University has this event for uh, some junior professors that I participated in that was this, uh, it's a retreat that they send you up to uh, Bjorkliden, like near Abisko. Mm -hmm. And they put you there for three days and they send you on walks with people of all faculties. And some of the best ideas I got for uh, interdisciplinary research came from these days. And this is something that I think is really, I mean, yes, of course I will go and read papers, but I hadn't, like I had the most fun when talking to actual people and with some of them, I'm still collaborating every day. Mm -hmm. Even if they do something completely different. And if we hadn't met there, we wouldn't have probably connected. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information out there and a lot of, I think maybe this is something that is very fatalistic, but I mean, the, a lot of the, the choices and the, the, the decisions that I've made come from being in one place at one time. Maybe it was the right place, the right time. And then I took that road. I mean, mm -hmm. I never look back. That's just a bit about me, but you know, I have no regrets for whatsoever. <laughs> but this is part of it. This is part of the, you find the, something interesting, you discuss with people and then you keep working on it. Mm -hmm. It's not about what is most popular or what is, uh, it has to be fun for me. If it's not fun, then I don't do it. Yeah. Um, how do you decide then on, on what to pursue? Because if I assume you're probably talking more than once per year for three days to people. So that's oh, yeah, of likely. course. Um, no, I talk to people all the time, like a hundred percent of the time. I'm, I mean, not a hundred percent because I also need to do a bit of my work, but I would say that 70% of my job is uh, discussing with people. Not just discussing with the people at my level, but also instructing students, teaching, uh, having one-to-one -one discussion, uh, like learning from others. So there's a lot of connection uh, with people. 
And even then, I'm in a collaboration of 3,000 people or more, uh, depending on how you count and which day you count. And uh, a lot of the decisions that I make are based on, I will like working with these people. I will enjoy my time working in this team. And in at least one occasion in my career, I've changed subject because I would have enjoyed more another group of people. Mm -hmm. And it was fine. That's what actually ended, like, that's how I ended up in Dark Matter. Is that group of people or did that change then? solely based on, on social factors or on topic factors? It was also, to the topic was in, like, the, given that I find every physics topic equally interesting, so I don't have preference. I think it's like everything in physics is fascinating. I could do anything, I, yeah. you know. And so, based on that, because I would enjoy everything, then I'll go and do the things that I find more fun. Mm -hmm. How do you decide which things are more fun because if, if you say that you talk to a lot of people all the time um and you have a lot of ideas is there any yeah any process of what idea to to pursue or is it just gut feeling i have to say that some of it is also the i mean i'm not working in isolation i'm working within a group within a department within a division and it also depends on what other people are doing so if i do everything that is always orthogonal with respect to everyone else then i will work by myself and i've a very social worker, so I like working on things that can connect to what other people do. So that's part of the choice. Mm. Uh, there's also the feasibility choice. If I had set myself and saying, during my lifetime, I need to discover dark matter. Yeah, I could pursue that, uh, but it's a bit of an unattainable goal. So I prefer to make small, uh, to have idea that are actually feasible and that where I can make a difference for something. And a lot of the time I will go and work on things that are behind the scenes more than in the front line or in the you know the front page. I will prefer that other people make the final plot and I make it possible by changing the software and I will get the software working and I will really like doing getting the software working, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of how it works, but this is personal preference. I wouldn't say that this is the way to do it. On your question that was interesting, how do you get ideas, is by having time to think. And I only realized that when I started in Lund and the, one of my mentors, the Professor Rockeson here said, you're doing a lot of things. Where do you find the time to think? Right? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> so I slowed down a bit on certain activities and uh, I found more time to think. And uh, even at times I, I have like two months, uh, now I don't know if I'll have it next year because I've kind of exhausted the grants I can apply to, but the time in which I apply for grants, I don't do anything else. And it's a privilege. It's a huge privilege to be able to do that. Mm. Because I have to actually ask everyone who needs things from me to pause, to not ask me anything for two months. And you can imagine that a PhD student might actually want stuff from a supervisor. Yes. So, I mean, I'll still meet with them, and but I will not be as uh, energetic as I was before because I'm focused on this thing, on trying to get ideas and trying to implement mm a plan that can work for me personally as my well as i'm a PhD student i would then think okay if, if you're two months basically not available I'm, i might not try to finish a paper in that time but rather explore myself a bit yeah exactly you find you find solutions that work for everyone yeah but i think also my my division is very kind to me and that and they're okay with me not doing too many things for that <laughs> during <laughs> those two months <laughs> There was this article on LinkedIn that you commented under. 
Mm. I use LinkedIn once every like three months whenever I wake up on the weekend and I don't have anything else to do. So I don't mm. even remember what it is. It was about, or some, some person wrote an article about how the academic system is screwed, let's put it that way, or very exploitative mm. towards the, the PhD student or the ones that are lower mm. in, the, in the ladder. Based on what you've said so far and the comment, definitely, um, you were the only person in that kind of said, okay, I've, I've had a nice experience and everything was fine. I always found people that supported me. Yeah, but I think this is kind of survival bias. It's dangerous to say that. I don't remember when I commented on that and how I commented on that and what I talked about and what the paper was even. I think I was particularly uh, upset at the fact that people like complaining a lot. Like this is the, the default state. If you don't do anything, it's a lot easier to complain to be happy. I think that's a general human nature, I guess. And when one doesn't have constructive ways of saying, okay, I'm going to make things better, or, uh, I mean, there, there must be some sort of silver lining to a lot of things. And I think the fact that people don't find silver lining at all and bash the thing that they are angry against can work, but it's also an easy way of getting clicks. Yeah, I hate definitely. everything. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, on the other hand, I think academia and in general, places where there is a power imbalance have problems. And the problems can be humongous. Like if you if you find yourself in a situation of academic abuse, because that's what it is, then it's very hard to find any fun or any silver lining. So I think we shouldn't, I, I don't want to conflate the fact that I have not, I had no problem so far. And the fact that other people must not have any problem. No, but if I, I mean, this kind of uh, these kind of articles are are more about uh, everything is wrong. I hate everything. I need to quit academia because the rest of the world is better. And I think that is the message that is not necessarily true. Mm. Yes, people might be happier to do one thing instead of another, but it's not that academia is more evil than multinational company that you know drills the ocean and destroys it or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you might have problems in a different place for different reasons. And just putting a blanket, everything is broken on a specific topic is not a very constructive way of going that for me. Oh, I definitely didn't want to imply that. Everything <laughs> no, no, I think it's a very complex, everything. it's an extremely complex topic, I think. Yes. And I don't want to give too much of an impression in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. What I think is that now that I have a permanent position, which is again a privilege uh, that uh, not everyone has, I am keen to make a change for the better. And this is where I go and look for ways to to improve things mm. so that's uh, in a small way because of course i can't change everything where yeah. i can just personally i probably also got very lucky with my supervisor Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad but i've also particularly from friends in germany got very interesting stories so far yeah oh well it mostly particularly in germany because well i only know phd students in sweden and germany so <laughs> yeah i think the culture the academic culture the place the workplace culture the the academic environment, the work environment, all count. And you can't really say Germany better than Sweden or Sweden better than Germany. But that's another thing. If you if you know that the department where you're going to go uh, is not, doesn't look fun, then go somewhere else. I think. <laughs> Even if it's the prestige is different, I would really privilege the fact that one has to enjoy research in order to do, do good research with respect to, I must suffer for five years to do a discovery. No, I don't, I don't buy that. So you have your permanent position, which is basically the dream for everyone in academia, eventually. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It's very impressive that he got it positioned within one iteration of the postdoc. As it I think I was lucky. I think that at that point it really is a lot of luck. Being the right person at the right time for that particular thing. I guess I work a lot, so uh, but not a lot in the sense that everyone should work a lot in order to get uh, to get success. But it's not like it's not true that uh, one has just to have luck. And I don't think that I was just lucky. I wanted things and I made things happen so that I could get the things I wanted. Mm. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be able to say much more than that. I mean, there's some, you can call them sacrifices or things that one adapts to that I've been able to adapt and others wouldn't have been able to adapt to. For example, I didn't have kids, so I had cats. Cats are transportable easily. They don't go to school. You know, you can move a cat from a country mm-hmm. to the other, no problem. And uh, with my husband, we're fine with uh, having a, he works in a different country and we're happy living a bit in here and a bit in there. And this is the kind of thing that uh, I can do because my personal situation, it makes me happy the way it is. But if someone has a happy situation in a different context or has other kinds of caring responsibilities, then you can't necessarily make this kind of life and you can't say, oh, it, uh, I now up sticks and go to Sweden because that's what they did. I was living with my husband and I said, okay, I got a job. What? And then we started the long distance marriage and because it wouldn't have worked for him to come and, and work here. He has a, a career that is uh, very similar to mine. He's very successful and he's in the UK. Mm. And we decided to make this choice and it works for us, but it might not work for everyone. So one of the things that uh, I think we want to improve in, in academia is that we, we need to allow for people to not have to make these choices, try to make it easier to accommodate people with different backgrounds and with different needs. Because otherwise we end up selecting on people that have, like the best person would be one person who has no friends, no cats, no family, no nothing, and kind of move wherever they want every five years. You don't want to select on that kind of category because then you get people that are all of one kind not because that kind is bad, it's just because that you select on one set of characteristics. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is proven research that when you have diverse teams, it's a lot better than having teams of a single kind. Yeah. So, in that sense, I think we, we need to improve a bit to make it easier for people with different uh, backgrounds and different level of privilege, because I feel very privileged for having the education I've had and being born in a nice country and so on. We need to make it easier for everyone to have the same access to academia and programming jobs. Yes, so you, you mentioned earlier that you, you go to those two-month trips to think and write grants. And the, for me, as I see it, the grant writing is very similar to pitching in a startup or a company. And there's usually something called a MVP in a startup, so the, the minimum viable product, something that, like the, the smallest thing you can build that works and that you can potentially sell to customers to get like some some business case going is there anything when writing a grant because for for pitching you really get feedback from the people you pitch to and so oh, on yeah. but for a grant you just you write the grant and you wait as far as i saw it well it's not necessarily true because before you submit something especially of the size of that makes you think and write for two months you want to have as much feedback as possible from everyone around you so you just hammer your friends now it's mm. the this time in which this uh there's these two big grants, the starting grant and the consolidator grant that are, are happening. And I was lucky enough to get one and then the other. So now I just, I really want to give back everything that I can to people. So everyone who asks me, can I look, can you look at my grants? Yeah, sure. 
I'm spending like 50% of my time just looking at other people's grants and telling them I am, it's, it's a limited amount of time. It's not like I do it all the time, but how to improve what I think, uh, my ideas, how, how does it read from a different perspective if I'm not in the field, visibility and all of that. So there's a lot of criteria that they're not the same exact same for the startup, but you can always think about what your audience is going to be and then find that audience as a preparatory step to submit it. So you don't do it in the void. And I have to say that the university at, here in Lund, but also in other places, I'm sure, they give you a lot of help. They even hire companies that are going to look at your grant and tell you, this works, this doesn't work, can you modify this or that? Mm -hmm. So this pitching happens uh, iteratively, maybe. Mm -hmm. But you still have to have, uh, like, we don't have a, a we have deliverables. That's what you would, you can call them deliverables. So you can call it, I'm going to write this paper about this topic with this technique on year two. And then I think what the, the reviewers look at is not just how cool that is, but also how feasible that is. Can you demonstrate that you're the right person to do it? Can you demonstrate that your group has the right competence to do it? So is it something that has, is likely to, to happen or not? I never write, I will find dark matter in my grants <laughs> because I, I know I'm not going to get there. I mean, I might if I'm lucky, but it's not something I want to bank on. So that's why I, I work more on the techniques that can be used for other things as well. Mm -hmm. And then particularly for the, for the really big grants that everyone wants and particularly in the collaboration of CERN, which is 2000, 3000. I don't know. Yeah, but not everyone applies to the same grant, I would say. Yes. <laughs> but usually many people apply to the ERC grants. Is there any, besides luck, is there any way to, to stand, stand out somehow or? So this is something that I've, uh, what I'm saying is not my, uh, my idea, but it's more like the combination of a lot of people's advice over the years. And the, one of the advice that I got that was most useful is to have a story and to, so something that makes other people understand how you got to that point and other people could be your viewers but uh, so if you decide to write a grant about dark matter the how you're going to do it and the why you want to do it are equally important so if you can bring people together with you and make them understand what you want to do then i think that's one way to uh, to capture the attention of people that are in the end have like a pretty big pile of grants to read they will be mm. the same after a while. It's like, okay, we need to do this. These are the work packages. So I think put a bit of heart into what one is doing. And not only the, I am the best person to work on this because I have all this experience, but also like, this is interesting. This is, I'm trying to make someone interested. I'm trying to get someone to understand why I find it, why I'm so passionate about this. And this is something that is, not easy to do, and I don't think I'm doing it right yet, but you know, have time to think. <laughs> I mean, why, why do you find this fun? I think that that's the ultimate thing. Why is it so cool that you're doing this thing? Why are you, why should anyone else find it fun? I find it fun for sure, but you know, that's my yeah. personal preference. Getting other people on board is the interesting part. Mm. I mean, interestingly enough, the, the fun part and the passion part definitely reads, yeah. reads yeah. the emails. Yeah, but I think this is also having time is important. One learns that with time. At least I learned it not too long ago. Mm. Otherwise, it's always doing, 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 doing. Anything specific when you have the time, what do you do? Except of maybe petting the fluffy cat? 
Oh, you mean time? Uh, I so I don't know if uh, the the concept of time is a concept of like it's a very broad concept. <laughs> yes. So there's personal time and then there's work time, and uh, for our profession, I think it's very easy to mix the two because I when you find something so fun, then you want to do it all the time you have. And uh, again, this is uh, this connects to the, uh, the discussion we had earlier about what if people have a child and not a cat? A cat can sit on the couch. Maybe it bites you, but you can't do the, like, I'm going to put the child on the couch and work for the entire weekend. That's not something, even if you want to, even if you, like, you find it so fun. And this excludes certain people from... Uh, if you if you select on people who can dedicate a hundred percent of their time to work, this is mm. not good for academia. So one thing that I learned recently how to, to balance is that okay, I I understand that it's not just I could work all the time because I have the means and I have no possibilities towards anyone else at the moment. But I don't want to do it because at that point I give the example to everyone else around me that it's only by working 100% of the time that we get results, and that's not true. It's better to work less, have free time, so time in which you're not thinking about work. Maybe you're thinking about it in the back of your mind, but not you know, in the front of your mind, in front of a computer. And uh, that makes you fresher and more efficient for, mm. for the work that you're actually doing. So I don't know, I, I have hobbies. We're pretty much close to the end. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there is... There was this one thing from Fermilab that is the snow mass process. I think it was. Called. Oh yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's in pause now. <laughs> they got something like a thousand five hundred letters yeah. of ideas of the next ten years yeah. of, of particle physics. So cool. Anything in there that stands out for you? Uh well, I'm involved in it. I'm one of the, I, I don't know, like middle managers would be the best. <laughs> But it, it sucks. No, but I mean, they need when they have so many things to organize, they need organizers. I'm one of the organizers. I don't actually have a role that is beyond the let's get people together to work together on some and get some paper that represents the community afterwards. And that's something that I really love doing. Like, I like bringing mm -hmm. people together, seeing them or organize, coordinate, uh, give input on. And it's really cool. I think that the social aspect of that is really nice. Um, I don't know if you mean scientifically speaking, what is uh, sticking out, or in general. Yeah, scientifically. Yeah, I mean, I've not read all of them, of course. I've read that. I yeah. don't know. I've had like a couple of hundred of them, I guess, at this point, but not all of them. It's like five, a thousand that are about dark matter. I've not even read, read all of them. How long is one of them? Uh, no, it's so the letters of intent are one page, one, two pages. Okay. I've, I've written six, so I mean, I contributed to the spam. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, not by myself, but I kind of... Uh, like follow the process and so each person can have more it's like throwing ideas into a pile and then developing those ideas over the next year this is what these letters of intent are and then each one of these letters of intent or they get some of them get merged and then they work together on towards a single topic and then some of them will lead to a paper mm -hmm. and i think one interesting thing that is emerging at least for my field and this is something that is not uh, uh, it, it's something that is quite far out there, but I think the sociological implications of that are very have been very interesting for me. Is that the the U.S. community? A lot of people are thinking about this muon collider. So instead of colliding protons or electrons, you collide muons. Problem: muons decay, so it's not easy to get them. Mm -hmm. You know, with relativistic rules, you can get quite a 
bit of a, you know, you don't get them to collide in your hands right away, but the technology needed for, for a beam of neurons is incredible. But you can get a lot of advantages from colliding muons that you wouldn't get if you collided electrons or protons. And so... Hmm? Such as? So you can be much more efficient in how much energy you transfer, essentially. And you can also be very precise because a muon is a fundamental particle. So one of the problems is that an electron is quite... Uh, it's a small particle, so the... The way we work with electrons here at Max is that we we exploit the fact that uh, when they get accelerated, they also lose a lot of energy. They spit out photons. Yeah. And uh, we use these photons to do checks of matter or, you know, there's a lot of good things coming from synchrotron radiation, that's what we call it. Mm. Uh, muons, you don't have that problem as much because a muon is much larger than an electron and uh, a muon would radiate less because it's larger. So you get more uh, with, you manage to conserve the energy of the muon more. And at the same time, mm -hmm. the advantage over the protons is that they are fundamental particles. So they don't break in a million pieces and then you have to find out what happened. This is what we're doing at the Large Hadron Collider. You get a lot of spam and then you pick out the one fundamental particle collision that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's messier. And with a muon collider, it's a lot less messy. So you can pack up, pack on a lot of energy and have very precise uh, collisions because there's nothing else from the muon except for the muon that has collided. Mm -hmm. And we could reach, uh, if you wanted to think about, uh, you can think about both precision measurements and high energy discoveries at the same time. Now, I don't think this, I mean, unless some technological advancement is uh, coming in the next few years, uh, like massive one, I don't think this is an instrument that will be realized during my lifetime. But I'm still very excited in seeing how much people think that this is the way to, like the visionary way to go ahead is doing this muon collider. And I'm talking okay. solely about particle, high energy particle physics, because of course an astronomer is excited about other things. And uh, if you want to compare whether it's better to do an astronomy or an astro particle instrument and or a muon collider, then you're comparing apples to oranges. You can't really do that. So I'm happy with, for people to be excited about everything. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, when you have to prioritize, then there's a lot of, this is the, out, the ultimate outcome of this, not just this process, but also another set of discussions based on the input from this process. Then the US will have to prioritize what do they want to put the research funding in. And it could be a new collider, it could be a collider in Europe, it could be no collider. So that's when you have a the hard questions come then. Right now, we're still having the, the exploratory phase. Can we do this? What, what can we do with this? How would we design this? Can we convince people that this is feasible? And that is a very mm -hmm. interesting part, I think, for a project of this magnitude and that doesn't really have the technology there yet. It's the process that is interesting. Then whether it gets realized or is prioritized, this is a different question. But a lot of people have very big hopes that, uh, and very big ambitions mm -hmm. towards that. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot. No problem. It was really enjoyable. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Hi, Philip here. Before you leave, I just wanted to thank you for listening and I hope you learned something in this episode. If that is the case, why not message me at philip at deeptechstories.io. I'm always curious about what you took away and look forward to a discussion with you. That is p-h-i-l-i-p-p 
at deeptechstories.io. It would also help me out a great deal if you could recommend the episode to a friend of yours that might find it interesting as well. See you again in two weeks with Aslak Stupsgaard, CTO of the Danish molten salt reactor startup Copenhagen Atomics.